This is Macro Horizons, Episode 6. FOMC, hold please, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of February 19th. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. Thanks, Ian. Given what we've seen over the past several sessions, what's your take on where we currently stand in the rates market? Despite the relatively benign price action in the Treasury market, it's been an interesting week in terms of what we've seen on the economic data front. The combination of CPI and the disappointing retail sales figures, I think, tells a very interesting story. And the story is that the FOMC has enough ammunition on the inflation front to at least keep a rate hike in play for the next couple quarters. Again, as the data continues to progress, we see a December move as less and less likely, particularly as the consumer starts to come under pressure, which is what was evident within the retail sales release. Not only did the headline print drop 1.2%, versus expectations for a modest increase, but the more important control group fell by 1.7% for its largest monthly drop since 2001. As one of our core tenants for 2019, as consumer confidence starts to wane, we expect that spending will slow and that will eventually flow through to lower domestic growth expectations. While we don't expect that we will see a consumer-led recession per se, by simply mean reverting on the consumer side, the amount that spending has been contributing to GDP will become incrementally less relevant, putting the onus on the other components of growth to drive the expansion. As a theme, it's been a very range-bound trading market over the course of the last several sessions. The one nuance that we would offer is that the CPI print, which came largely in line with expectations, did incrementally flatten the curve. And the flatter curve reflects investors' expectations for the Fed to at least have some potential to deliver another rate hike this cycle. We've also seen a renewed round of optimism about the trade war, as Trump has signaled a willingness to potentially extend the deadline for the trade negotiations with China. Our takeaway isn't that that means that there's a great deal immediately on the horizon, but rather that the administration is concerned about the impact on overall investor sentiment, and as a result is content to kick the can somewhat at this point in the negotiations. 
A takeaway from our conversations with clients this week has been there's a clear debate about whether or not 240 effective Fed funds is the absolute end of the cycle, or if we have another rate hike or two before the Fed claims mission accomplished. Our read is that another quarter point or two for the Fed is not as important as making sure the correct signal for the Fed's willingness to act in the event of a more material slowdown is communicated. The pendulum of optimism has swung a bit more to the positive side this week, although the looming clouds on the horizon we find more relevant, and never let it be said that we let a silver lining get in the way of a dark cloud. Reflecting one of the other core themes that we have for this point in the business cycle, within the details of the inflation report, we saw that OER and Shelter contributed a significant amount to the core figures. Rather than interpreting this as a sign that one of the core pillars of pricing pressure remains, we're reading it as the potential for the downside that we've seen in housing prices to eventually flow through on the inflation front. Admittedly, we've been looking for that for the last several quarters, and we have been somewhat surprised that it hasn't materialized thus far. With small business optimism dropping back to its weakest level since 2016 and uncertainty at a 45-year high, We'll have to admit that we're taking a bit of solace from the fact that the market is shifting into our camp of being more nervous by nature. Range trading as we await more information from the Fed and on the data front seems the path of least resistance, and for the time being, we're reluctant to fade the in-range consolidation. If that musical interlude didn't mobilize images of a fireside rates chat, I can't imagine what would. Well, it at least got me there. So in the fixed income world, there's been a lot of focus on the corporate bond market. How has that been informing your outlook for treasuries? Well, as a general rule, we tend to follow spreads as an early indicator of stress. If we look historically, most of the major corrections in the equity market have been preceded by a spike in high-yield spreads. This particular moment in time offers a slightly different perspective for several reasons. One is borrowing costs have been very low for a very long time, and corporate balance sheets are not in a particularly bad state. In fact, given the ease with which companies have been able to access the bond market over the course of the last several years, there's an argument that corporate America is a lot healthier than it has been in decades. What I find notably unique about where we stand at this moment is the number of fallen angels that are at the lower end of the investment grade indices or the upper end of the credit spectrum of the high yield indices. Fallen angels simply defined as corporations which previously had very high credit ratings and have subsequently fallen into the high yield or junk category. So one of the core differences between the Fed's QE program and the ECB's was that the ECB was actively buying in the corporate space. As they've pulled back, it's not unreasonable to expect that you might see 
an additional tightening in the corporate bond market that didn't necessarily occur when the FOMC stopped buying or during the Fed's balance sheet roll-off period. The more interesting question to me is kind of what happens next. And especially in the ECB, it doesn't look like they're set to raise rates this year, but they also are going to have a bit of a regime change as Draghi looks to make an exit. I don't have a high conviction as to how this plays out, but it seems that they're going to have to be very careful around this to maintain a conviction of low rates as well as a larger balance sheet. It's going to depend on who rolls into the picture, what the staffing is, what their background is. I guess, how do you see the distribution of risk around that transition? Is this something the market should be paying attention to this year? Well, you make a couple very good points. The first being that the ECB's bond buying also included non-sovereign debt. And for that reason, the idea that U.S. corporations have become increasingly multinational and been able to access relatively low borrowing costs in different regions, and now that dynamic is shifting or will potentially shift as QT continues to play out, I think will, or at least should, continue to increase the net borrowing costs on the corporate side. One of the things that I have been worried about at this particular stage in the cycle is the fact that Regardless of spreads, the actual net borrowing costs on the corporate side have been increasing as front-end rates have continued to rise. Obviously, that is, by definition, what tighter monetary policy is designed to do. That is playing out in the U.S. at least. In Europe, I think that the October transition from Draghi to the next president of the ECB will be pivotal. It will be informative to see who gets the seat. The present consensus seems to be that it will either be Finland or someone from France. Now, there's still a lot of time between now and when we actually see the role filled, but regardless, the slowing that we've seen in the European economy, I think, makes it a lot harder to not assume some type of additional stimulus. Do we go back to bond buying? Do we see a cut further into negative territory for the ECB? It's unclear. However, given the material probability of a recession in Europe over the course of the next 12 months, I think that something will need to be considered on the monetary stimulus side. One of the big differences between the ECB and the Fed during the crisis was the ECB's willingness to dip into negative interest rate territory. One additional policy lever that they could pull would be to adjust how they're purchasing bonds or reinvesting bonds or something to that extent. Previously, the ECB has basically followed what's called the capital key, and that proportionally allocates across countries. If they wanted to try to ease financial conditions or help out with some of the more peripheral countries, theoretically, they could shift how they're buying, kind of diverge from the capital key, which would help suppress some of the peripheral spreads and maybe help out places like Italy that are showing pretty severe signs of economic concern. That would definitely be an interesting transition, much like the uncertainty surrounding what is going to happen in the U.S. with the Fed if and when they need to either adjust the balance sheet runoff or make a move on the rates front. To be fair, both the ECB and the Fed did engage in maverick monetary policy during the crisis. What has become 
increasingly topical at this point in the cycle is what happens when the Fed needs to more aggressively provide stimulus, i.e. cut rates. There was an assumption that the Fed was going to be able to normalize rates much beyond the 2.4% effective Fed funds rate that we're currently at. And so if we are in fact facing a slowdown that will require a cut, the question then becomes, will the Fed dip into negative interest rates following the example of the ECB during the crisis? So that would be a relatively extreme move, but it's far from impossible. And the reason why is the name of the game in monetary policy when you're trying to stimulate the economy is get real rates as low as possible. And you can either do that by lowering nominal rates as much as you can, or lowering nominal rates and increasing inflation, which pushes real rates even further. The question is, is it worth it to basically lower overnight rates another 50, 100 basis points, what have you, from just above zero to somewhere between zero to negative 1% in order to get that extra drop in real rates, which is extra stimulative, but it comes at a cost. And this is why if the Fed decides to go this route, they're going to have to be very careful and very thoughtful about how it's introduced because it would be severely disruptive to some of the money markets, and you don't want to get that wrong. This is a very important conduit for financial activity and how monetary policy is able to influence aggregate financial conditions and the overall economy. So the big question is, do you think of the lower bound the next time the Fed cuts rates as just above zero, like in post-crisis period, or maybe just below zero? That would also have reasonable implications for the shape of the yield curve, because we're operating under the assumption that the lower bound will be zero, and rather than dipping into negative rates, the Fed will once again expand the balance sheet via additional QE. If that's the route that is taken, the traditional re-steepening of the yield curve that occurs when monetary policy is being actively eased has a cap or some type of limit because investors will assume that step one is cutting rates to zero and step two is buying bonds, whether that's tens, thirties, or equally throughout the curve. And to be fair, a lot of research has gone into some of these high-level questions, right? As of now, this is all a theoretical exercise in the U.S. We haven't actually hit negative rates yet. That being said, some of the more recent research suggests that negative interest rate policy might actually have some value add. There was some research out of the San Francisco Fed that suggested that implementing modest negative rates, somewhere between zero and negative 50 or so, negative 50 basis points, would have shortened the downturn and been increasingly stimulative. That being said, when modeling these kind of things, it's really hard to factor in what's the impact on the financial system? Is there a negative stability effect on the banking system. And it's these kind of much more difficult questions that might lead to some hesitation in implementing negative rates. Whereas, to your point, the Fed has a comfort with and has a demonstrated success using QE to lower borrowing costs. One aspect of monetary policy that often gets undervalued, at least in my opinion, is the ability of the Fed to signal 
whether it is through forward guidance, whether it is through the actual expansion of the balance sheet or cutting rates, their willingness to be stimulative in the real economy. That might sound a bit like stating the obvious. However, when we look at how markets trade and whether it is the upside potential in the equity market or the persistent rally in the 10 and 30 year sector of treasuries, the market is clearly more responsive to the perception that the Fed is transitioning between different monetary policy stances. So tying all this together, I mean, this is part of the new neutral thesis, and it has pretty profound and important implications for what we should anticipate 10 and 30-year yields to be, as well as investor returns going forward overall. One of the other fallouts from this being the new neutral is a topic that I hear a fair amount, and that's the underfunded pension liabilities. It's interesting, this has been very topical for the last several years. Obviously, the biggest issue is the assumed rate of return versus the reality of investment returns in a very low-rate environment. Part of it has to do with the volatility in the equity market and the necessity to allocate more toward the higher-performing asset at a time when the safer or more traditional bond investments are returning lower rates by historic standards. What I find the most telling about conversations around this issue is that the questions almost invariably come from the professionals who are managing these pension funds. And the essence of the concern is, why isn't the market paying attention to this problem at this point? My biggest concern in this regard isn't the potential dislocation of asset prices or a market functioning concern, but rather what it means to the consumer. Given the aging population in the U.S. and the reliance on some of these pension schemes, the notion that individuals would need to curtail or materially change their consumption patterns because of this problem, I think is a very material one. I'd also, in addition to the consumption, I'd flag the risk to growth, particularly from the state and local government sector. And a lot of municipals have very poorly funded pension schemes. And you can talk about some of the big states, some of the major cities that are in the news. But the reality is if we go into another downturn, there's a decent likelihood that you're going to see some spending pull back. So state and local governments may not provide a positive impulse to growth anymore. They could either be flat or, at worst, a negative. So this could be a headwind for growth, which would help slow things going forward. There's also the liability side of the equation as well. And that comes down to the assumed rate of inflation in a lot of cases. This brings up some of the structural changes that we have seen on the inflation side over the course of the last several decades that, frankly, I can't see a reason that we shouldn't expect to persist. Technology has obviously been a significant driver of structurally lower core inflation. I'm often asked what it would take to increase real GDP. The changes in technology that immediately come to mind are things like smartphones, the amortization of retail, even things as simple as ride sharing create a great deal of competition 
drives down prices, and materially changes the way that inflation occurs in the U.S. economy. I would also argue that the speed of technological change makes it almost impossible to correctly quality adjust some of these things, right? In theory, you're consuming a constant basket over time. But, you know, I'm sitting here with a smartphone in my pocket. If I tried to price that back in 1990, it would be billions, right? I'm not a billionaire. And the reality is I don't know how they can properly correct for some of those things, especially when it changes so quickly and there's so much variabilities. This introduces the risk that we actually have more severe deflation brought on by technological change. It's great. It's improving standards of living. But how do we think about that in terms of investment returns if all we do is rely on the government CPI series? One of the biggest criticisms about the CPI series is, while it makes an attempt to quality adjust for the incremental gains in technology, what it doesn't do is it doesn't really reflect what average people are paying now versus a year ago versus five years ago. I often come across this critique from those in the market who are a bit more bearish than I am. And they are essentially saying, look at what I'm spending, look at what my friends are spending on whatever their household expenditures are. CPI is wrong, it should be higher. And when I ask the question, well, what number would you throw out there? I often get numbers year over year, headline CPI should be in the four, five, 6% range. My immediate response to that is if that's the case, then the US is already in a recession. And if you flip that logic on its head, that inflation is actually lower than we currently might measure it, that actually would increase growth, increase productivity, and some of these puzzles that we have about why are things so low suddenly disappear. I'm not trying to argue that it's that simple, but directionally, I find that more compelling in the era of Gmail being 100% free. Uh, John, can I see your billion-dollar phone? I need to order a $6 salad. Hate to break it to you. I think they're closer to $10, $12 now. Ah, inflation is everywhere. Speaking of perishables, what do you make of the recent moves in LIBOR? Well, so far, it looks like the big one-day drop of over four basis points we saw in three-month LIBOR last week was largely just plain catch-up to where the market was already at. You know, I think the speed and severity probably caught people by surprise. But the way I'm thinking about it from a bigger macro lens is this is a different scenario than what we saw in Q1, Q2 2018. Back then, LIBOR increased pretty sharply and then was basically flat for six months, whereas three-month OIS continued to go up. That had the effect of narrowing LIBOR OIS. This time, OIS is totally flat, and that makes sense if no one's expecting the Fed to move in the next three months. So we have Fed funds expectations flat to current. LIBOR is going down, though. And if anything, it's 12, 13 basis points, i.e. half a cut, lower than where it was after the December FOMC. So in essence, the market is easing for the Fed. And given that financial conditions are more tied to LIBOR than Fed funds itself, this is a development we haven't seen thus far in the hiking cycle. And arguably, it's one that corresponds with a Fed that wants to be more stimulative, as you point out, it is the market easing for the Fed, keeping borrowing costs contained, and being at least incrementally additive for risk assets. We can see this playing out in the equity market performance. 
But how much stock should we really put in the equity market? I mean, I'd rate the treasury market as being more important. It really just yields a lot more information. Well, in commodities, the oil market can always be a little slippery. Well, that's why the MBS market is helpful. It can provide shelter right when you need it. Okay, John. Very punny. The good news is, you can't spell rates without F-U-N. Oh, wait. In the week ahead, the most important information will come in the form of additional clarification from the FOMC. Obviously, the minutes will be the highlight, and we'll be looking for details about how the phrase patience and flexibility are going to be incorporated into the Fed's thinking in the coming months and quarters. Suffice it to say, our expectations are not for a remarkable amount of new information to come out of the FOMC minutes. However, any clarification or context for how the phrase patience translates through to the committee's thinking would be welcome and potentially pivotal in terms of the shape of the curve and outright yield levels. Moreover, the focus on the balance sheet and the ongoing process of running off, or i.e. QT, will be a topic that a lot of the market will be focused on. We'll admit a great deal of surprise at the fact the equity market and investors in that space spent much of the end of the fourth quarter contemplating the balance sheet, what it means, and how it can translate to the broader economy as well as the economic outlook. And in that context, expectations for more details on the committee's thinking on the topic seem warranted at this point in the cycle. And while the FOMC meeting preceded the most recent disappointing retail sales figures, it'll be interesting to get some further context for the Fed's take on the broader state of the consumer. One of the aspects of the retail sales report that struck us as notable was the decline in non-store retailing, i.e. internet sales, which dropped an impressive 3.9% in December. Now, typically that decline occurs in January. So the fact that the consumer has started 2019 on already shaky footing is relevant as we consider whether or not the Fed will be able to deliver another quarter point hike. In delving into the details of the retail sales report for December, it was notable that there was not an increase in medium-sized chunks of coal, which was not our personal experience this year. On a slightly more serious note, the holiday-shortened week will give the market an opportunity to test some of the recent ranges that we've seen established in the Treasury market. On the lower end for 10-year yields, we've been watching effectively 262. A break of 262 would put the 2019 low yield mark of 254 into range. Through that is the obvious 250 target. And beyond there, we think it will be very difficult for twos to sustainably trade below effective Fed funds at 240 until there is a clear shift in the Fed's stance on monetary policy, i.e. going from on hold with the possibility of hiking later to on hold with an acknowledgement that the next move will probably be an ease. 
in terms of the shape of the curve at 15 to 20 basis point range in twos, tens continues to hold. On the downside, we'll be watching for 13.2 as initial resistance to the flattening, then 12.2 basis points, and then finally the low of the cycle of 9.1. A break of that certainly puts inversion into range. However, we don't think that that is going to be the story of the next two or three trading weeks. Returning quickly to our thoughts on the FOMC minutes, we will be looking for any clarity on the rationale behind the pause. Questions that come to mind are, was it due to a shift in the baseline scenario or simply the distribution of risks given what is going on on the global trade front? Also, are they pausing at neutral or below neutral? Or as the cynics might say, are they pausing beyond neutral because we've now seen it in the rearview mirror as evidenced by the correction in equities. As is typical, it will be interesting to see if there has been any disagreement on the committee. While the vote was unanimous and the Fed speak has been largely in line, it will be useful to see if there are members who have a disparate opinion in terms of extreme hawkish or extreme dovish. The downside from that process is that we will spend the afternoon counting the number of severals, fews, minis, and mosts within the FOMC minutes. The most positive news that we have to offer is that we have reached the end of the podcast and the point in which we thank, congratulate, and extend our condolences for anyone who has managed to listen this far. We truly appreciate your interest and support, and as the Treasury Department said to those bidders who missed at the 10-year auction, don't worry, we'll make more. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting 
eliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.